Over the course of the past week, the vast majority of our elementary, middle school, and high school students returned to school, and I see a row of seniors back there who are just excited because they didn't have to, or former seniors, I apologize. And commensurate with the, the return to school, I always like to do one lesson that's geared toward our students in particular, but has application more generally to our audience at large. And, and, and my, my goal is to communicate a message that applies to the upcoming school year. And uh, normally I would do that on a Sunday morning, but I, I have a, a certain amount of time I'm trying to get the names of God done in. I'm trying to complete them by the end of the month, and I needed an extra Sunday to do that. So I bumped this lesson to tonight. And so I want to spend this evening uh, talking about a subject that will relate highly to our students, but to everyone as well. And really what I want to focus upon is friendships. I want you to think back to your childhood if you have exited that phase of your life. I want you to think back to your childhood. And I want you to think, was there ever a friend you had that your parents did not want you to hang around? Was there ever a friend you had that your parents just did not want you to associate with? Maybe an even better question is, were you that kid that nobody's parents wanted their kids to associate with? Maybe there was that, that kid that, that your parents wouldn't let you spend the night with. And you would go home and say, but mom and dad, it's so much fun over there because their parents are never home and we get to do whatever we want. And you're sitting there wondering why they won't let you go over to that person's house. And then here you are as an adult. Maybe you have your own kids now and maybe you've pinpointed some kids that you don't want your kid hanging around. Maybe now you're making those decisions about who they can spend the night with or whose house they can go to and so on and so forth. And here's the thing, as parents, when you hit that phase of life where you are responsible for a child, your decision-making process all of a sudden changes. And as parents, we start having those concerns about who our children are hanging out with and who our children are around. And it's because we understand the significance of relationships. We know the influence and the impact that a friend can have on our child's life. And so as parents, we instinctively want to protect our children from negative influences. And you know where we got that idea from? Where did we get the idea that we need to protect our kids from negative influences among their friends? Well, we got it from the Bible. The Bible talks a lot about relationships, especially friendships. And as our young people return to school, I thought it would be appropriate for us to talk about our friends and what the Bible has to say about our friends, what the Bible has to say about their influences, and what the Bible has to say about how we can protect ourselves from bad company. But let's start with the simplest question. What does the Bible have to say about relationships? When you journey through the Bible, the first thing you'll notice is the Bible indicates that relationships are necessary. You can see this in the second chapter of the entire Bible, Genesis chapter 2. God has made Adam, and then all of a sudden God realizes in verse 18 of that chapter that it is not good that the man should be alone. So God creates a helper suitable for him. God initiates here the very first relationship, the relationship between a man and a woman as husband and wife. Now, I know that's not necessarily uh, a parallel to friendship all the time, but 
what I want you to see here is that from the very beginning of creation, God saw the need that mankind had for relationship. And though not every individual is going to get married, not every individual is going to be an Adam to somebody else's Eve, there is an underlying principle here in Genesis chapter 2 that relationships are necessary because God saw that it was good that man, it was not good for man to be alone. So relationships are necessary. The other thing we can learn from the Bible about relationships is that they are beneficial. This is apparent in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verses 9 through 12 if you'll read that with me. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But Woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A, three, a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. The idea is that you are stronger. You are more well-equipped. You are able to accomplish more when you are in cooperation with others. There are benefits to our relationships because they embolden us, they empower us, they give us the ability to do more than we could do alone. As a result, true friendship has a good return for its labor. I also think about Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 17, which simply says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. What Solomon is saying is that true friends, the, the friends that you really want, they're the ones that are there when you need them the most. They're there when things get tough. They're there when everyone else bails on you. There are benefits to friendship, and the Bible does not hesitate to identify those benefits. Additionally, we can look in, in Scripture and see that the Bible indicates that relationships are less important than discipleship. Friendships are less important than discipleship. One of the most difficult statements Jesus ever made appears in Luke chapter 14 and verse 26 when he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now that sounds like a very inhumane, intolerant, harsh, unloving thing for Jesus to say. But what he's really trying to communicate in this statement is that our primary relationship must be the one we have with him. No other relationship should take primacy over our relationship with Jesus Christ. Following him must be the most important relationship we have because all relationships are less important than discipleship. In fact, our relationship with Christ should, should be a friendship. Think about the Old Testament. Think about Abraham, this individual who had such an intimate relationship with God that he could negotiate with God regarding Sodom and Gomorrah. Think about Moses, this individual who had such an intimate relationship with God that he would have to put a veil over his face after he interacted one-on-one -on -one with God. Both of those individuals in Scripture are called a friend of God. And then think about here in the New Testament, in John chapter 15, verse 14 and 15, Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. 
No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I've made known to you. Jesus is saying that disciples are more than mere servants. There's something deeper to the relationship between, between Jesus and his disciples. He's revealed to them God's will in a way that a master doesn't just reveal to servants. It's more than that. It's a friendship. So ultimately what he's saying is that discipleship, which is our relationship with Jesus Christ, our, our friendship, if you will, with Jesus Christ, it takes precedence over all other relationships, over all other friendships. And one final thing we should notice that the Bible has to say about our relationships is that we should be willing to take extraordinary measures to protect our relationship with God from being negatively impacted by our relationships with others. One of the most interesting laws in the entire Old Testament appears in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 6 through 10. I'm not going to read the entirety of that because of its length. But in this passage, the Israelites were instructed to, to take extraordinary measures to protect themselves from being lured into idolatry by someone they know, whether that be a relative or a friend or someone with whom they have a relationship. In a brief uh, overview of the text, here's what it says. If your brother or your son or your daughter or your wife or your friend entices you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. You shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God. Do you understand what that law says? If you have a relationship with someone and that person tries to get you to commit idolatry, you're supposed to kill them. That doesn't sound very nice. That doesn't sound very loving. That doesn't sound very kind. What God was trying to do was to get the uh, Israelites to understand the importance of their relationship with him. The importance of this, there is no God but me, teaching that permeates the Old Testament. There is this means through which God is trying to get them to understand just how protective they must be regarding their relationship with him simply because others can influence it negatively. Now, I'm not bringing this passage up because I want to reinstitute it as policy here in the church today. No, that's not the reason I'm mentioning it. Thankfully, we're not under Mosaic law anymore. Thankfully, we're under the new covenant in Christ. But it makes me think of just how, how significant the influence of others can be, and how much God cares about us not being negatively impacted by them. And so I want to draw your attention to a passage in the New Testament, to something that James writes, James chapter 4 and verse 4. He says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In other words, if you are a friend of the world, then you're an enemy of God. You can't be both. You have to make a relationship choice. 
a friend of the world or a friend of God. And the implication of this passage is that our relationships with the world or our relationship with the world can have an incredibly negative impact on our relationship with God because it can return us to a state of being an enemy, a status that was washed away by the blood of Jesus. And I find it interesting here in James chapter 4 that some instructions follow after this statement by James about choosing to be a friend of the world or being a friend of God. He then follows it beginning in verse 7 and going through verse 10 with some very simple instructions that could be summarized like this. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Humble yourselves before the Lord. All imperative statements, all commands, all instructions given that I think may be relating back to what it will take in order to maintain your friendship status with God and denounce a friendship status with the world. And that means that James is, is identifying some extraordinary measures that we have to take in order to protect our relationship with God. And so regardless of whether you're looking at a, an outdated law in the Old Testament or updated instructions in the New, there's an expectation that you and I are going to protect our relationship with God above all else. And that might mean we have to take some extraordinary measures in regards to our relationships with people in this world. And so with all of this background, all of this understanding about, uh, from the Bible that relationships are necessary, that relationships are beneficial, that discipleship is more important than relationships, and that our relationship with God must be protected above all else, let's consider some things about friendship, particularly the fact that we might need to put together some guardrails to protect our relationship with God. Now, I want you to think about guardrails. If you are a driver, you have seen guardrails before. Uh, a guardrail is a physical uh, structure that serves as a protective system, and it's installed near hazardous areas in order to warn drivers or from potential dangers and or prevent drivers from encountering those dangers. Now, I know that's a kind of complex definition, but we understand what a guardrail is. It's a barrier put in a safe place to keep you from entering an unsafe place. The idea behind a guardrail is that if you crash into the guardrail, it will protect you to some degree. And it might cause some damage to your vehicle, but it's going to be less damage than you would incur if you didn't have the guardrail there. And so, guardrails serve a protective purpose to keep you from danger. You'll find them in medians to protect us from coming into contact with traffic that's moving in the opposite direction. You'll find them on bridges to prevent us from falling off bridges. You'll find them around curves to, to both warn us of changes to the driving conditions and to prevent us from exiting the roadway in a dangerous location, such as on the edge of a cliff. And you'll even find guardrails in front of immovable objects, such as an overpass's pillar to protect us from coming in contact with something that could be detrimental. So a guardrail exists to protect you from encountering something hazardous. 
And if such protective systems are useful in the physical realm, couldn't they also be useful in the spiritual realm? What, what I mean is don't we need some guardrails in our spiritual lives just as much as we need them in our physical lives? But that would necessitate us defining a spiritual guardrail. And I've built the following definition from another preacher's definition, so it's not entirely original to me. But a spiritual guardrail is a personal standard of conduct that when violated harms one's conscience and thereby warns the individual that he or she is venturing into sinful territory. Let me say that again, and you may want to read it again. A spiritual guardrail is a personal standard of conduct that when violated harms one's conscience and thereby warns the individual that he or she is venturing into sinful territory. The key thing to understand is that if you violate a guardrail, you're not sinning because you've set the guardrail up in a safe zone. Guardrails are never where the actual danger is. They are before that to keep you from encountering the danger. And so a spiritual guardrail is constructed in the area where you haven't crossed into sin to prevent you from crossing into that sin. So it's a personal situation. It's a personal decision of this is how far I'll go. Because if I go any further, I might sin. And my guardrail is not going to be your guardrail. My guardrail will apply to my life and where my limitations are. Your guardrail would apply to your life and your limitations, and they may not be the same. And I believe we need guardrails. I believe we have precedent for guardrails in Scripture. For instance, if you go to Genesis chapter 3, I think we uncover a guardrail that Adam and Eve put into place. Because in Genesis 2, God instructed them not to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But then in Genesis chapter 3, when Eve was tempted by the serpent, she recounted the instruction they had received regarding that tree they were not to eat from. But it had a clause in there that didn't exist in God's original statement. The clause was, neither shall we eat from it. I mean, neither shall we touch it. They were instructed not to eat from it, but it sounds like they came up with a policy not to touch it even. So they didn't cross that line to the point where they would sin. God didn't say don't touch it. They came up with that on their own, I assume. Because the sin would be to eat. And if they never touch it, that would help prevent them from ever being enticed to eat and therefore sin. So it seems to me that Adam and Eve had a guardrail in place. And I believe we need guardrails in our lives, especially when it comes to relationships. But why? Why would we need guardrails when it comes to, to our friendships and to our relationships? Consider the following biblical passages. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 26, Solomon says, The righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. He's saying, be picky about whom you befriend because it's very easy for those who are wicked to influence you negatively. Then there's Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. The point is that just as our friends have the ability to influence us negatively, they also have the ability to affect us positively. 
And then there's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, where Paul rather bluntly says, bad company corrupts good morals. No, your grandmother didn't come up with that. God came up with that. The people you associate with have a profound impact on your life. So the Bible speaks consistently about the impact of friendships, about the impact of relationships, and how they can influence the quality and the direction of our lives, as one preacher pointed out. And the Bible actually goes a step further than, than just announcing the influence friends have on us. It gives us a great example. And that example is in the life of a man named Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the grandson of King David, the son of King Solomon. And when Solomon died, Rehoboam inherited the throne. He became the, the, the third king in the Davidic dynasty. And Rehoboam, he started out with a dilemma, a political dilemma, a, a crisis that he had to deal with. The people of Israel were asking him to reduce the taxation that was placed on them by his father, Solomon. And in response to this situation, you can look at 1 Kings chapter 12, particularly between verses 6 through 15, and you can see that Rehoboam initially took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive. That's what it says in verse 6. He initially says, All right, I'm going to listen to these, these mature wise individuals who served my father for those many years and see what they have to say about handling the situation. But then if you look at verse 8 of 1 Kings chapter 12, we're told that after hearing their advice, he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him. In other words, instead of listening to wise mentors, he chose to listen to his buddies. And all he did in listening to their advice, which was poor advice, which was uninformed, uneducated, unwise advice, all he did was anger the people. And the story of Rehoboam goes like this. A man named Jeroboam rises up and initiates a, result, a revolt. He ends up losing half the kingdom to Jeroboam. And his lasting legacy is recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 14 as one who did evil, for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Rehoboam's career and reputation and apparently even his soul were all negatively impacted by his relationships. See, the Bible makes it clear that we can be influenced. Our lives' direction can be influenced by the people we associate with. And so maybe we need to consult the Bible for a biblical principle that can serve as the basis for a guardrail we put in place. And, and I think that should be Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 20. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. I think it's best to break it down like this. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. It's, it's as though Solomon is saying that wisdom is contagious. That if you surround yourself with people who the Bible would consider wise, then by nature of proximity, you're going to be wise too. Because you're going to be 
ingesting the wisdom of others. But that's a promise Solomon makes, followed by a warning he offers. And it's interesting because he doesn't turn around and say, whoever walks with the fool will become foolish. No, he says the companion of fools will suffer harm. He doesn't, he doesn't counter the wisdom statement by saying foolishness is contagious, though I do believe it is. Instead, he points out the fact that if you hang out with foolish people, when they go down, they're taking you with them. In other words, there's something about being around foolish people that puts you at risk, that you are endangering yourself because when they have the fallout, some of it's going to blow back on you. You're going to experience some of the shrapnel of their demise. And so it's Solomon's way of declaring you need to be picky about who you associate with. And so, as I bring this study to a close, let's talk about four specific guardrails that we might need to put in place to protect ourselves when it comes to our relationships. And for our young people tonight, I, I think there are some specific things we could say. Remember, a spiritual guardrail, guardrail should affect your conscience. It should trigger something inside you that says, okay, I don't need to proceed down this road anymore because there's danger ahead. And so I think your conscience should be pricked when you find yourself longing to be liked by a particular group of people. It's not wrong to want to be accepted. We all want to be accepted. Nobody wants to be the last kid picked for kickball on the playground. We all want acceptance. But when you crave that acceptance from a particular group or a particular person, then you're more susceptible to doing something that you shouldn't. You'll do things to win that acceptance. You'll do things to earn that acceptance. And most often those things aren't acceptable to the Lord. And if you hear somebody who is close to you, somebody who knows you, say, when you're around that group, when you're around that person, you're different. That should bother your conscience. It's an indication that you are trying to fit in and are therefore easily susceptible to influence by that group or that individual. So if you find yourself longing to be liked by someone or, or some group of people in particular, then that should be a red flag for you that you are headed down a dangerous road, not because those people are bad, but because they will be able to exert influence and power over you that should only be given to the Lord. A second guardrail I think would be useful for our young people in particular, but for us all collectively is that your conscience should be pricked when you feel pressure to compromise on things that you've never struggled with before. When something becomes a temptation for you that has never been a temptation before, that should trigger an alarm in your mind that you're going down a road you shouldn't be going down. When you be begin considering behaviors that you've always considered off-limits, when you start considering activities that you've always considered off-limits, when you start considering 
activities that you've always considered off limits, that should be a sign that you shouldn't go down that road anymore. And a third guardrail. Your conscience should be pricked when you find yourself saying, I'll go, but I won't participate. That's ultimately a decision to be in the proximity of foolishness. And as Solomon pointed out, the companion of fools will suffer harm. And the thing is, you never know when the harm is going to come. So by choosing to be present, you're choosing to put yourself in the danger zone and not the good one that Tom Cruise was in. So whenever you find yourself saying, I'll go, but I won't participate, that should be a red flag for you, that you're headed down a dangerous road. And I've heard in my lifetime, particularly when I was a youth minister, I heard teens say, I'll go because I want to set an example for them. Yeah, set that example at home. You don't have to be present to set the example because you can set a stronger example by not being there and not subjecting yourself to the temptation that they're experiencing. If you start saying, I'll go, but I won't participate, that should be a warning sign. That should be a guardrail. And one last guardrail I want to mention. Your conscience should be pricked when you find yourself preparing a defense of where you've been or who you've been with before anybody asks. If you're preparing in advance for the questions your parents are going to give you, if you're already negotiating some solution to the question of where have you been that will be appeasing to your parents or to some other authority figure, if you're already reasoning in your mind how you can get out of this, You've hit a guardrail. You see, there are some steps we can take to prepare ourselves and protect ourselves so that we don't cross that line into sin. And let's be honest. Yes, I'm talking primarily to our teens tonight. But adults, you need these guardrails too. I even need these guardrails. Because these guardrails protect us from not being unequally yoked with an unbeliever, as Paul instructs in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. Much can be said about this passage alone. But his instruction reminds us that the people with whom we surround ourselves will have a direct impact on our life. And if you surround yourself with the faithless, then your faith is going to be less than it could be. But if you surround yourself with the faithful, then you will have a greater possibility of being filled with faith. This evening we take the opportunity to talk about our relationships because they have a greater impact than we sometimes give them credit. And maybe, just maybe, we need to be more cognizant of the influence others have on our lives. And definitely we need to be more cognizant of what God thinks about the influence they have on our lives. This evening, if you find yourself breaking those guardrails, if you find yourself being influenced negatively by people that are around you, if you find yourself surrounded by the foolish, maybe you need to make a decision 
to change your associations. If you find yourself one who's a friend of the world and not a friend of God, then maybe tonight's the night you change that. And it starts by becoming his child, confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, repenting of your sins and being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. If you've wandered away, now's an opportunity to come home because God our Father is a loving and merciful and gracious God. If you have any need to respond to the invitation this evening, then we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.